This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Today is Thursday, July 25th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with my co-host, Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Hey, Mark. Hey, Morgan. Are you enjoying this weather after we had a listeners are going to know we had this horrendous heat spell which made us drip with sweat but now we're having a what we call an ideal summer cool in the mornings warm in the afternoons beautiful evenings i mean i basically like anything that's warm i'm not too hard to Plus please it. so even when it was really hot i was still happy i humidity is awesome and my best yeah. friend well i would have to agree with that now my wife's of a different opinion <laughs> I know. Hard when you have to live under the same roof with yeah. someone who doesn't agree with you about the weather. Yeah. And you have you have thermostat wars. Ah. Who's going to control the thermostat? I will say my room and I do get along around that really yeah. well, which I really appreciate. I will say my wife is very gracious, even though she disagrees with me sometimes when I turn on the air conditioner. She says, okay, if you, if you want. <laughs> that is smart. All right, who's joining us today? Joining us today is Dermomo Gary. He's originally from Sudan. He lives in Carroll Stream. He's an immigrant. He works with Rural Relief in a couple capacities. He's an immigrant church engagement liaison and senior support services specialist. Uh, and as I said, for Rural Relief in DuPage and Aurora. He's a friend of the family. He works with my wife and he has an incredible story to tell us, which I'm really looking forward to uh, having an opportunity to explore. So welcome, Dermomo. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Do you have any comment about the heat as well? You know, the thing is when we talk about the heat, I just feel at home when it gets hot. Yeah. So for hot me, humid? No, I don't take humidity though. Oh, okay. Uh, humidity kills me, but I enjoy heat. So when it is hot, I really feel at home and I love it. Yeah, my wife likes the when it's dry heat, like in Fresno where she was raised. You can be 100, 105, and if it's dry, she doesn't mind. You know, back when we play soccer outdoor when he's 100, it's no problem with that at all. Well, it's great to have you on the show today, and we're really looking forward to hearing more about your story. I want to give our listeners some context for why we decided to invite you to come into the studio today and record with us. So the number of refugees that the U.S. permits each year has declined each year under the Trump administration. Since 2017, the administration has lowered the maximum cap that the country can take in. Beyond humanitarian concerns, this also has consequences from a persecution perspective, as many of the refugees around the world hail from some of the world's most religiously repressed states. And many of those countries are considered tier one, quote unquote, countries of particular concern by the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedom. In other words, they're the worst of the worst when it comes to religious freedom. So earlier this year, Christianity Today reported that, quote, in 2016, the U.S. resettled almost 47,000 refugees from the United States Commission for International Religious Freedoms, countries of concern, including 14,551 Christians. At this current rate, fewer than 9,500 refugees from the same countries will resettle in America this year and only 5,103 Christians. Next year, it could be even worse. Last week, in fact, Politico announced that, quote, Trump officials pressing to slash refugee admissions to zero next year. In a letter to President Trump released by the Evangelical Immigration Table, a coalition of evangelical institutions who frequently speak together on migration issues, they offered some concrete numbers for how the persecuted Christian community might be affected under this proposed plan. And they were writing to President Trump in this particular letter. And they said, in your first week in office, you pledged to welcome Syrian Christians to the U.S. as resettled refugees, a commitment we cheered. But in fact, the number of Syrian Christians admitted to the U.S. this fiscal year is on track to be fewer than 40, even fewer than were admitted in fiscal year 2016. The decline among other persecuted Christians has been even more stark. Compared to fiscal year 2016, the number of Pakistani Christians resettled as refugees is on track to end the fiscal year down by 67 percent, the number of Iraqi Christians down by 94 percent, and the number of Iranian Christians down by 95 percent. So that is taken from this letter that was released by the Evangelical Immigration Table. Last week, we had the chance here at Christianity Today to do an interview with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. 
This is how he responded to concerns that the dramatic cuts to the refugee program had closed off one of the avenues that people of minority faiths have to escape persecution. So I'm going to just read the answer that he said about this particular situation. He said the administration appropriately is incredibly proud of how we treat those who are at risk around the world. I think there's no nation in history that has accepted as many refugees as the United States has, nor whom has had an even broader acceptance of people coming from around the world, both to come here to study and to learn, but those who want to come here permanently as well. Our focus here at the State Department has been told to do our level best to do what we believe those people actually want, to help them stay inside of their own country, to deliver them goods and services and benefits, and to shape their government policies in ways that permit them not to flee their country, but allow them to exist safely and securely inside of their own country. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to get past all of these numbers that we just had the chance to read to you. And we wanted to talk to someone who came to the U.S. as a refugee because of religious persecution. I do recognize that we threw a lot of numbers. If you guys want to read the podcast description that accompanies this podcast, you can probably understand those numbers a little bit more than hearing me talk through them. But I think even more importantly, it'll be nice to hear a story as opposed to just thinking about people in terms of data points. Or policies or whatever, politics, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Mark, I'm wondering before we get into our conversation today, if there is gut check that you have. We know that we talk about refugees a decent amount on the show. And in the magazine as well, because that's uh, one of, you know, there's half a dozen uh, larger national issues that we are especially concerned about, like abortion, like racism. But refugee and immigration work is another one that's a very high priority, not just because my wife works at World Relief. We were concerned about that decades before that. So when you hear the declining numbers, it's not a very pleasant thing, especially considering our point of view is that the the nation has enough resources and has the facility to welcome many more people than we're welcoming now. I know, you know, friends disagree with me about that, but it's always sad to hear that the numbers are going down instead of going up. At the risk of repeating other things that I've said about refugees on this podcast, I think what's always really frustrating to me about this particular conversation is how thoroughly it's misunderstood with regards to the actual process that people who are refugees have to go through before they come to this country, the levels of security and screening checks that they have. There's just an intense amount of bureaucracy and the fact that almost every refugee ends up becoming a refugee, not because it was something that they chose, so to speak, but because it was they were trying to escape the circumstances that they were from. When we're trying to talk about the immigration argument, I always wish that this could be its own discussion. And it's been really confusing to me to see this kind of lumped into the larger immigration wars that are being hashed out because the process and the situation is completely different than all of that. Yeah. And that's easy to get confused. I mean, even I, who's trafficked in this whole world for a long time, I sometimes get confused when I'm talking about immigration as opposed to to refugee resettlement, for example. And those are two different worlds. They have very a lot of similarities, but there there's different things going on there, different dynamics we have to be aware of. Absolutely. All right. So, Dromo, we are so glad that you are able to join us today. And I'd love for you just to kind of start out by telling us where you are from. And you told us a little bit that in the beginning that your country, Sudan, was very hot. But what else is it like besides that? Of course, I come from Sudan, from the part that happened to be South Sudan now. So oftentimes when I tell people I'm Sudan, first question is, where are you from, South or North? I tell them both. <laughs> because when I left, there was no South and North, it was only Sudan. So now we have Sudan and we have South Sudan. Very confusing. I miss the heat back home, which I'm getting it nowadays around here, which is really good. And I do feel at home. Life was normal based on my own divination. That was life was supposed to be. Growing up as a Christian, I thought, you know what, when you choose to be a Christian, you choose to just have a difficult life that, you know, things would not be good for you. You may not go to a college of your choice. You may not find a job of your own choice, not because you're not smart enough, but because someone else has to decide for you because you are a Christian, you can't make it. And and that has been a life that I grew up in and Again, I thought that was normal, you know, and, and, and my idea is that was the price of Christianity. You know, not everyone could be a Christian because it is tough to be a Christian. And once you make that step, you make that choice to be a Christian and be able to pay for it by suffering, by not living the life that you dream to live. So that was my life. That was how I grew up. How old were you when you became a Christian or were you raised in a Christian home? Here's the thing is I grew up in a Catholic family. My dad was a very good Catholic. So going to church from an early age was. And you were baptized. Was part of the family. I was baptized as, as 
infant at seven days old. But I really came to know the Lord personally in college after, of course, many years after that. Yes. So when you did make that, that kind of mental commitment, you were well aware of the costs of making that then. Back home back then, just calling yourself a Christian or going to church is enough to put you at risk. I see. So, so even if you're not committed. Even if you're not, just calling yourself a Christian, that is it. That's all what it takes that, you know what, you have become part of the other group. And now, which means that your life is at risk for claiming to be a Christian, even if you're not. So did you grow up in a small town or in the city? Ah, a little bit in both. Uh, some part of my life have been in a small town, but I grew up in a big city as well. And the anti-Christian sentiment was present in both the small town and the city? It was pretty much all over the place and something that you can escape it. And even for me, coming out from a family that probably 90% are Muslims, it started with my family. It's not something that I have to go to the street to see it. It starts from home. Sounds like there might have been just a general acceptance that this is the way things are. Was there much anger or frustration among the Christian community about this? Not really, because as I said earlier, it was a lifestyle that Christians have accepted to go through. For me, the word persecution never came across my mind because I'm like, it is not a persecution. It is Christianity. That is what it takes to be a Christian. So we accepted it like that. That's really interesting. When we think about it now, since you're t- you're saying this, it w- this is all very normalized for you. There were schools that you weren't allowed to go to or parts of town that you were discouraged from walking in or what did that actually look like? Not part of town, but when it comes to, to going to school, when it comes to applying for certain colleges, there is a limit. You know, you can't apply. You know it, you can't apply for it. And they would not even take you. You would not even go through the interview process to go there. So you even when you look at the requirements, they will say, okay, when you come for this interview, there is a prayer meeting and then we meet after the prayer meeting. And you know, it's not a Christian prayer. You have to meet in a mosque. So as because you can't go to pray in a mosque, then which means that you can apply for that job. It's, it's obvious. Wow. So tell us a little bit about your family. You already mentioned that your dad was Catholic. What was his faith like? My dad was a very strong Catholic. Growing up, going to church on Sunday was not an option. It is a must. So we have to go to church. Knowing that going to church on Sunday has its own risk as well. You know, when you go to church, I can remember clearly as a kid, you know, when you see a strange face walking through the aisles, you were like, who is he here for? Because most likely it's some security guys they are looking for someone to pick up from the church. Someone is supposed to be arrested. But in spite of that, I have to be forced to go to church every single Sunday. So for my dad, knowing that there is risk for going to church, but think for him, he believed it is worth going through this because, you know, we're Christians. So we can't give up going to church because of the threat that we face every single Sunday. I remember a time whereby the priest uh, at the end of the prayer or the pastor would say, hey, guys, as we are going home now, please walk in groups. At least five of you should walk together. Do not walk home alone. We want to make sure everyone gets home safe. And sometimes we make a joke out of that. You know, you say, hey, I made it yesterday. I made it home alone. (laughs) So it has become part of a lifestyle that we don't even feel the risk anymore. Did your dad ever talk about dying for his faith? Actually, my dad was shot before I was born. It's part of his faith. Yes. To be killed because of your faith was something normal. And we expect anybody could go through that at any time. Could be my dad, could be me, could be a family member. So that was part, it was normal, actually. It wasn't a big deal that someone was killed because of their face or someone was mistreated because of their face. Hearing comments around is is a daily dose that you go through. It wasn't a problem at all. What did you learn about your dad growing up? I learned about him that he has a big heart when it comes to forgiveness. Because at some point he knew, because as I said, he was shot. He did not die. He survived the shot. He knew who shot him. And he refused to tell us his kids who were those people. He's like, you know, he was what? shot for being a Christian was part of his faith. Yes, part of the that's problem. part of his faith has been a big part of that. And he was like, you know, what? I know if I tell you, you'll be angry at them. But let me tell you one thing. All you need to do is to love them. He said, even if someone is trying to kill you, the best way to fight back is to show love and help them when they need help. He was a big man. Yes, he was. He was. So growing up, did you agree with your dad's perspective? It was confusing for me at the beginning because how can you love someone who is working hard just to wipe you off the face of the earth? Someone who doesn't wish any good to you, how can you love them back? 
And then as, as I grew up and he started knowing things, I learned, you know, why he was doing that. That was because of his faith, because that is what the Bible says. So he's trying to apply the Bible without telling us, hey, guys, these are the Bible verses that you have to follow. You grew up with knowing that your dad had been shot for his faith, that things, well, you knew that it took a special type of person to become a Christian. Did you have some moments when you began to question your faith and whether you wanted to be a Christian? Not really to that extent, but it, it, it hits me sometimes when maybe a friend of mine announced that, you know, they're becoming Muslim and, you know, they are showing them with a lot of money. You said their whole life has been turned around overnight and you know what, you grow as a poor kid, you see that happening around you. Come on, you know, there are resources there. Why not? And then at the same time, we think back, you know what, Christianity is not about being rich. It's not about having the money. It is about suffering for your face. So if I choose to suffer for my face, I will do it till the end. That has been the teaching. At the same time, obviously, suffering is hard, right? And it gets exhausting. It is hard, especially when it comes to you making the choice to to suffer for your faith, whereby you have an option. If you, if you announce tomorrow, if you go to the closest mosque and tell them, hey, I have become a Muslim, they would make a collection, an offering right on the spot for you. And you would come back home with a lot of money that has been going on in my hometown a lot. But when you think about it, okay, now I will go make the announcement, get the money, come back home, and then I am a Muslim. So in my little mind growing up, that is a betrayal to Jesus. I don't want to betray Jesus. I cannot do that. So how long did you live in Sudan for? Almost my whole life. So what changed? What happened that led you to leave the country? Going back to that situation of, of the persecution and everything, I have at some point, I accepted it as it's something that is everyone is going through. So what is special about me, if everyone is, is, is supposed to go through that as a Christian, then I will live my life here till the end. And I knew some friend of mine that have been picked up. Some of them got killed. And I'm like, you know, I'm not special. I'm just one like them. And I will wait until my time comes. And the time did come. I went to college one day morning and the security guard knows me pretty well. And he's like, hey, son, come over here. And I'm like, what's going on? I was like, no, no, don't go. Come here. So I went to him. He was like, hey, you know, they were looking for you. I'm like, who are them? So I was like, I don't want to call a name. You know who they are. They were here looking for you this morning. I'm like, can you explain to me a little bit? He's like, you know, we don't want to talk in a public place. Please come to me over here. So we went to a corner. He's like, hey, you know, the security were here. It's obvious. It's your turn now, son. I'm like, okay, so what should I do? I have a lecture. He's like, don't go to that lecture, okay? They may pick you up from the room. Go somewhere. Look for a place to hide. And that is when really it hits me that now it has become personal. And what should I do? What am I doing next? Leaving the country running was not an option for me. I was totally against it. I don't want to leave. Where should I go? And I had no plan to go anywhere else but to stay there. Because you were a student, right? You just would go up, go to class. Oh, yes. And then, you know, the question was, am I better than the people who have been killed in the same way? I'm not better than them. I'm not going anywhere. So that's when it started. It really hits me as a person and I started looking around. And then I reached out to my dad. He was in a different city. said, hey, dad, this is what is happening now. Can I come back home? And his response to me was like, son, don't. If you come, I can't protect you anymore. And, you know, as growing up as a kid, you feel, you know, your dad is this big hero. You know, he can beat everyone. He can do everything for you. And then all of a sudden, he's telling me he can't protect my own life. And I'm like, I'm your son. He's like, I know it, but I can't do it. He's like, they will come and pick you and they may kill you right in front of me. And I can't protect you. So this is the point where I'm like, okay, I have to think differently now. And how old were you? I was in my 30s, I would say. Before we get to you leaving the, the country after that, when when you're talking about them, who exactly is them? Can you give us a sense of the larger religious conflict that was happening in Sudan at the time? At that time, there was a declared war, jihad going on in a country. The president went out and declared jihad. Once he did that, as a Christian, you are a target. Because what is a jihad for? Jihad is against Christians. And and once that has been said, then everyone can interpret it any way they want to and can take it against you at any time they want to as well. So security forces had, had the authority to pick you up and do whatever they want to do with you under 
that theme of jihad going on in any country. Was this what became known as the genocide or is that different? That That is part of it. Okay. Yes, that's part of the genocide that happened in Sudan. Because actually, people hear about the war in Sudan about maybe the late 80s, maybe the 90s. We had war since 1955. And as I'm talking, it's still going on now. So it's, it's not new, but within the time, maybe I would say from 1989, it really intensifies. And it become, uh, first it was like African versus Arabs. And then it became clear. Muslim Christians. The president made it clear it was a government program that they were applying it. And unfortunately, the way to apply it is to kill those who claim not to be Muslims. Wow. All right. So after you realized that you can't go back to your father's house, what's the next step that you took? I, I had I had a good friend of mine who happened to be my professor in college. So he heard about it and he reached out to me. He's like, hey, do you have a place to go? I'm like, place to do what? He's like, you can't go home. Don't you know what's going on? I'm like, no, I'm going home. He's like, okay, go pack your stuff right now and come to my house. And he took me in his house for three months. He was feeding me and he told me how to drink coffee actually in those three months. I was never drinking coffee before (laughs) that. I was in a room and every time he comes to the room, there is a cup of coffee and we will sit down and drink coffee. So after three months, I had my training. You were ready to come to America. Ready to come to America and drink more coffee. So while you were there for those three months, were you planning what was going to happen next? He was trying to convince me to leave the country. Did you have a passport? It, no. So there were some issues. No document. And then he's like, okay, now, because he's from the same area that I come from. What's that called? I come from a very Western part of South Sudan. And he's like, let me tell you, we have lost enough people. Okay. We don't want to lose more. He said, at my age, I'm ready to die. But at your age, we need you to leave. And the only chance for you to do that is to leave the country. So my question to him was, where do you want me to go? And he was like, anywhere. He had no clue even. He was just telling me to leave the country. And then I started asking some, you know, close relatives, including my dad. And he was like, go somewhere. I'm like, daddy, where? He was like, somewhere. So now they're telling me to leave without telling me where to go. So I had to run around and think through everything and just decide where am I going. And you picked Egypt, correct? Yes. What did you know about Egypt before you went there? Nothing. So how did, well, uh, I think part of the story that I want to hear more about, it. how did you get there? And how okay. did you get a passport? Tell you us. You know, I can just go to the government office, stand in line and get a passport to leave the country because I know since the, the security were looking for me, my name has been flagged. It is on a list all over the place. So if I stood in line anywhere, I'm just exposing myself and that is dangerous. So to get my passport, I have to go through a friend of my friend who happened to work with some of the government agencies. And he's like, man, you know, we will get your passport. But, you know, give us the pictures. You have to pay more than an average person pays to get a passport. That's to bribe the, them. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And I needed it. I yeah. need to leave the country. So, you know, I paid him the money and he brought my passport back with the wrong date of birth the same year, but different months. I'm like, I don't care. All I need is my passport. <laughs> so you're, you're in the part of the country that's on the southwest side of the country? No, this was in the capital now. You were in the capital now? Yes. Okay. And do you know how far away that is from Egypt at this point? Is that close? It's about two hours flight, maybe a little bit more than that. Could be three hours if you're flying to Cairo. Are you then able to just fly Uh, from Khartoum to Cairo? After I got the passport, the problem is how am I going to get a ticket even to leave the country? Because, you know, you have to buy the ticket, you have to go through security, a lot of stuff to go through. We had some sort of student ministry, some some version of university here in the U.S. We have something called Focus back then in Sudan. So a friend of mine that used to attend with us, the fellowship, he, he works for a travel agency. And he's like, you know what? We need to do something because all of my friends now know what I was going through and everyone was trying to help me get out of the country. And he's like, you know what? I work for this agency, travel agency. I will try to see if I can put you in a flight. And I'm like, you're just trying to kill me. How are you doing that? And then he said, okay, hold on. There is a trial flight next week. It is not flying to Cairo. It's flying to Aswan, to Upper Egypt. 
So all I want to do just to get you out of the country and then the rest is for you. Do you speak any Arabic? I do speak Arabic okay. pretty well. So that's at least one thing you had yes. going for you. So he's like, you know, my job to cross the border with you. Once you're there, it's up to you. Do whatever you would, would help you. I'm like, okay, so how am I getting the ticket? He's like, okay, let me confirm that the travel flight will be there. It is, it is a new company that will be flying out of here. And since it's a trial flight, there are no passengers in the plane. You know, maybe a few people will be there and I will come with you to the airport and see what I can do for you. Yes, he got me the ticket, one-way ticket, actually. And he came and said, hey, man, get your suitcase. Let's go to the airport. He said, okay, let us walk together. If anybody tap you on the shoulder and ask you to stop, don't say you are with me, okay? Because I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm like, okay, man. Just take me there. So we got to the airport and I went with him since he worked for the travel agency and we went through and I was able to board that plane, which almost crashed. And <laughs> yes. That, like really almost crashed? Yes. We flew for about an hour and a half and I can feel the whole aircraft was rattling around. And then an announcement came from the captain said, you know, we experienced some problem with the engine. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we, uh, we may fly back to the airport. And while on our way back, if things really get worse, we may just have a crash landing. Oh, my gosh. And I look down, <laughs> all I can see is a desert. And now I, I start, and I'm like, God, I am running from death and you want to kill me here. And at some point I felt, you know, it is my time to die because I was running from death and death have found me now. So what should I do? So all I did is just fasten my belt, sit down calm and wait for death. Because I, I, I really, I believe this is the time. It's the time. I can't run from death anymore. I'm not doing it. I'm not freaking out. It's time to die. It's time to die. Because here is the problem. If, I, if, if they flew us back to the airport, the security is there. So they're just handing me over to them. So, on, so they had to turn back the aircraft. We were flying back to Khartoum. And then few people who were there, they said, hey, you know, we need to make a plan. And one of the guys said, when, we, when they fly us back, we should not leave the airport. We should tell them just move us to another flight. Get us to another plane that's flying out. Because they said, if they take us back, we never know what's going to happen. And I'm sitting down and said, good job, man. Go for it. That's the plan I want. So we did. We flew back. The plan worked out well for us. They did not take us through the security. to took us a special room for about two hours. And there was a British airline flying out. That is how I left the country. This is a major Hollywood movie potential. All right, Any of you so, script writers out there will give you Dromomo's address and you can work with it. All right. So you land in Upper Egypt and now you have to get to Cairo. I landed in Upper Egypt and then I went around asking people, hey, where is the train station? I want to catch a train. Yeah, because, you know, I speak Arabic. It wasn't a problem for me. So I went there and got my myself a ticket for the train and I bought the train from Upper Egypt, from Aswan pretty much to Cairo. Did you have a plan once you got to Cairo about like, were you thinking I'm going to start my life in Cairo or was your objective once you got to Cairo to apply for a refugee status? You know, my initial plan at that time is just leave the country, not knowing what is next. It's just get out of here and then see what is next. So I left, got to Cairo. I looked around, not knowing what to do. And then as I am there, my visa soon would expire and I will be undocumented. So the option is, okay, go to the UN office, say, hey, you know, I came from Sudan. Maybe they will give you some form of documentation, at least to protect you from the local police. So I went to the UN, reported myself, registered myself, and that is a whole different process to go through. Yeah, it can take a long time. What year did you land in Egypt? I came to Egypt in 2002. All right. So you apply for refugee status there. And for people who don't know, essentially, if you want to end up being resettled in a different place, you have to register, I believe, right with the UN office in there who says they'll resettle you at some point. You can decide that you want to be resettled. That's not your decision at all. And and oftentimes we hear that refugees are people who just flee their countries because of persecution. It is not automatic that you left Sudan, you are a refugee. That was not the process that I went through. Because even though I left Sudan, I was persecuted, I came to Cairo. UN did not accept me as a refugee. No, 
No. No, okay. that's not the process. You have to sit down and write a case. You submit that case to UN officials and they have to sit down and question you through the paper that you submitted them to verify what you wrote down in that paper. And they may say yes or no. If they say no, you're not a refugee, although you left your country. So how did it go when you had that time? I had to go through that interview and it took me about maybe two, two and a half hours. And the lady looked me in the face and said, sir, I can't promise you anything whether you are accepted as a refugee oh or not. Wow. Go home and whatever we found out, we'll let you know. I went home and waited maybe a couple of months. And then the phone call came and said, okay, you are accepted now as a refugee. Come and get your refugee status. I did. Does that let you work? No. So even though you're in the country, you still can't legally work there? Here is the problem. You know, when we talk about Egypt, we are talking about unemployment rate probably among the highest in the region. And now you are there as a refugee and you want to compete with the local Egyptians in the job market. That is a whole different story. So they hate you, obviously. Oh, yes. So going back to the approval story is like, I have a friend of mine that he lost, he lost his arm because a grenade was thrown into a church and he was able to just toss it away. He risked his life to do that. And he was in Egypt with me and he applied for refugee status. He was denied. Wow. Yes. His case was denied. And he lost his arm. He lost his arm. Isn't that an evidence? No, it's not for UN officials. (laughs) Wow. So the the process is not that easy that you go through it. You come from your country, you go to third country, board a plane and come to U.S. It is not that easy. So they tell you that you got status and then how many... Years later, did you find out that you were going to be resettled? After UN accepts you as a refugee, after UN gives you that status as your officially a refugee, then they would see if there is an option to resettle you or not. Talking about the U.S. system, if okay, if UN says, okay, now we have decided to send you to U.S., then which means that they were sending your paperwork likely to to the IOM office in that country. IOM is? International International Organization for Migration. And then when the senior people there, you have another interview with USCIS officials that would fly from here to come and see you in person. That is a different interview that they may deny or accept you still there. So you are not, you are not done with those interviews yet. You are not done with the vetting yet. It just started. So the first interview through the UN, it could be one time, could be twice. And now you are now facing USCIS officials that will, they want to talk to you in person. They want to see you and verify every single thing you have said. After everything goes okay, if they like you, then they will say, mm, your file looks good. It's time now to go the background check, the biometrics. So now they would, if, if they accepted it, they will bring all of your information back to US. And that's when probably between five to six different security agencies work in the vetting. And to my knowledge, they would look through every single country you have been into to make sure you are not a bad guy, you are not someone, you are not a terrorist. After all this goes okay, then the result would go back to the local U.S. embassy there to do some paperwork for you as well. If everything goes okay through the embassy, then your paperwork would go back to the IOM office and then the IOM will try to sign you pretty much for your first loan, which is your travel ticket. Because refugees do not fly for free. You actually oh. pay for that ticket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you sign your first loan before coming here. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And you're ready to be American. You're already in debt. But in you, debt. Step on, you drink yeah. coffee and you're in debt. There yes. you go. <laughs> this episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by NavPress, the publishing arm of the Navigators. NavPress publishes products that are biblically rooted, culturally relevant, and highly practical. You mentioned you were waiting for something when you started thinking about this book. I was widowed very suddenly Mm. eight years ago. I lost my first husband. The doctors said he had the flu and they sent us home from the hospital and he died the next morning. Oh my gosh. And the bottom fell out of my world and I did not know what I was going to do. I waited for sunshine. I waited for healing. I waited for the flowers to bloom again in my heart and in my mind. I waited for God's faithfulness. I waited to see his favor. So I discovered that waiting really comes down to three different parts. The first is longing when you're separated from what you what you don't have. And then you enter into a season of becoming. Either, you know, the seed takes root into the ground or God is putting some details together that you just cannot see yet. Then comes the awakening where we see what we've been waiting for and we reach the goal and we, we cross the finish line. Or sometimes we realize that... 
God's answer is going to be no for this, but he is still good. And we become awakened to his presence and his faithfulness, even in the no. Trisha Lott Williford's book, Just You Wait, Patience, Contentment, and Hope for the Everyday, is available now at navpress.com. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. What what did you think when you heard that might be moving to the United States? All I want is to get out of where I am. And I did not care much what I was getting into. My main focus is to get out of what I am in. So if they tell me you're going anywhere, I'll just tell them I'm ready to go. So you moved to America. I'm assuming that you got picked up by someone from World Relief when you came into the airport. And they drove you to an apartment. This story actually started with my family because I got married. You know, with all this thing going on, life was moving. Where did you get married? In Cairo. (laughs) Is that where you met your wife? We met from Sudan. We knew each other from Sudan, but her dad has to fly, has to run away before I even ran. So her family was chopped in different pieces and then they were reunited back in Cairo. I came there as well. I'm like, hey, you know, since everyone is here now, can we do something about it? And that's when we got married there. So we landed in New York on October 31st. As an American, you know what day is that? Halloween. Halloween, yes. So we landed at the airport and all I can see around is creepy customs. I've (laughs) never heard about it. I've never read about it. It freaked me out. Um. And my wife was really concerned. She was really concerned. Like her spiritual antenna was to the top. And she would say, look, at that one has a tail. No, that one has big ears. That one looks like that is a demonic image. And I'm like, honey, this is America. They worship whatever they want to. (laughs) Let them do their own thing. We need to catch our flight to Chicago. <laughs> oh wow. So we navigated the airport and got to where we were supposed to catch our flight to Chicago and we were welcomed by World Relief staff at the airport. They brought us home. So you get to America. Obviously, you've heard something about America. And what is the first way that you felt that America lived up to the expectations that you thought and that America did not live up to the expectations that you thought? I had a shock. Just to admit to you, uh, I had a shock coming from Cairo to Cairo Stream. (laughs) It's completely different. Where are the people? (laughs) Where are the people? To me, this looks country. It's nobody on the street. And all I can hear is a garbage truck backing up in the morning. And I'm like, Has anyone been raptured? Is my family left behind? (laughs) Because I don't see anybody around me. And that was was quite a challenge. And then I think within our first week, we were visited by a group from a local church. They came to see us and, you know, they spent some time with us and, you know, we talked. And surprisingly, asked them, I said, hey, you know, we're Christians too. We need to go to church. How can we get there? And I haven't got an answer. But I I ended up being a member of that church until today. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) And I came to found it later on. This is the church that people came for me to visit us when we came first. Oh, okay. You didn't even know the connection. I I did not know the connection. Probably it was more spiritual. That's why I couldn't figure out at the beginning. So how many years have you lived here now? Uh, we have been here since 2006. Okay. So you would count it uh, probably. 13 years. 13 yeah. by next Halloween day. <laughs> <laughs> your anniversary. <laughs> My anniversary. <laughs> how would you say that your time in America has been challenging for your faith? 
here is is completely different, okay? To be able to wake up on a Sunday morning and knowing that I can go to church and pray without any fear, without any intimidation by anyone, that is huge. To be able to be at church and lift my hand and worship God and close my eyes, knowing that I would not open my eyes and see any stranger who's waiting for me, that is huge. And, and, and to be able and, and just get up and look around and I know that I am not being hunted by someone. To know that I can go out there and express myself as a Christian, that is a lot. That means a lot to me. And that's what I have never experienced. I'm still learning. Is that real? I'm still testing it until now. Is it real? Is it working? Although I work with churches a lot nowadays. I just had a meeting with a pastor this morning. And it is such a privilege to be able to see that happening around here. Where I come from, that is abnormal. And where I come from, pastors live dangerous life. Because, in, you know, the security will be coming after you all the time. And, you know, you may not be able even to sit down in one place. And I can call a pastor, say, hey, you know, we have a meeting next week. And I see you in your office at 10 o'clock. And sure enough, we'll be there. We sit on a nice couch and, you know, drink some coffee. and. That's, that's amazing. Do you ever find it challenging given, given how, I don't know if the right word is, easy it is? I could be wrong with this. At some point, I feel like persecution is an ingredient for church growth. When, when your face go through testing, you go for it. You don't let go of it. But when your face is very reluctant, it's plateau, you know, easy to go. You can easily slip off of it. I, I have seen that in my own life. I have seen how things were, when things were really tough, you know, we can pray all night. We call it an overnight prayer. And and those are some of the things I struggle with around here. I'm like, why are we not praying enough? And I'm like, why? Is there, we don't have enough reasons to pray for? And I, I can hear people saying, comments, yeah, you know what? We need to have some prayer points to pray. And I'm like, we have a lot to pray for. <laughs> <laughs> we have so much to pray for. You know, like, for example, where I live now, we are halfway between a senior living community and a fire station, which means anytime there's a 911 call, the ambulance would be coming through my house. That is a prayer request for me. Anytime I hear an ambulance siren going on, I know someone is in trouble. And I say, God, it's my time to pray for that person now. So we have a lot to pray for, but sometimes it seems like we don't see things around us. And that is my challenge here in America, seeing that happening in the church. What do you wish that more American Christians understood about being a refugee? For instance, coming back to myself, I have been a Christian before I became a refugee. So if you would accept me as a brother in Christ, I am that before I became a refugee. So why would you skip that and look at me as a refugee before looking at me as a fellow brother in Christ. And at the same time, who are these refugees? They're just humans in the image of God. Regardless of where they come from, regardless of how they look like, how they speak, what they eat. And even if they're not Christians, isn't that a chance to reach out to these refugees? I was at the church in Downers Grove a few months ago, and they were like, oh, praise God, we have someone flying overseas for a mission. I'm like, good job. I, I, I'm really for mission work. And I, let me tell you, where are you going? I was like, I'm going to this kind of, let me tell you, I know a community from this country that is right here in your backyard. Can you talk to them? To me, that is the opportunity for us. These people are around us here for a reason. God did not bring them for no reason. He brought them here for us to be able to reach out to them. I'm talking to as an American now. They're here so that we reach out to them with the gospel, to show them who Jesus is, to show them the love of God, to reach out to them with the gospel. But unfortunately, many times I have not seen that happening around. We are just angry. What do you wish more American Christians knew about Sudan? It is a country that has been mentioned in the Bible many, 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 many times under different names. I want them to know that their fellow brethren in Sudan have gone through a lot and they are still going through it. They need their help. They need their prayers. We need to reach out to them and say, hey, brothers, we're here for you. We are praying for you. And if possible, what can we do beyond prayer? Because as we know, prayer without action is that. I can't remember if you're able to travel back to your homeland when you have a refugee status, are you able to go back to, I guess it would be South Sudan at this point? 
I am a U.S. citizen now. I yeah, I, I can go back. I haven't been back yet. Uh, I haven't planned to go back yet, but maybe a day would come. What do you miss most about it? Um, the heat. <laughs> Son, okay. And he's, you know, hey, friends, he's saying this in the middle of July. Just think, imagine what he's <laughs> yeah. like in, in the middle of January. You know, it is a 24-7 sunshine rather than Chicago. It's the total opposite. Okay. <laughs> well, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we, we conclude our interview? I, I think for us as, as Christians in America today, when we hear about problems, we hear about troubles, we hear about refugees, overseas. As I mentioned earlier, yes, we need to pray for them. But when we turn our back on brothers and sisters who are being struggling, who have been persecuted overseas, and, and, and we see the decline of that mission, the numbers have been going down and down and down and down every day. And as Christians, we kept quiet. We don't want to talk about it because maybe that is politics. I, I know a lot of us are praying, but can we do something beyond that? Can we go beyond prayer? Can we stop turning our back on our very own brothers and sisters, the ones that have been sold by ISIS in the slave market just because they are Christians, the ones that have been persecuted in Sudan all over the place just because they are Christians, and knowing that we are here, we have the means to do that, to help them. We have the means to reach out to the local authorities and whoever we can talk to say, hey, you know, admission of refugees helps us. We need it. Now I work with about 20 plus churches in this area that are pure refugee churches. Are they a liability to the church? No, they are assets for the local church. And I can prove to you they are assets. They're doing a whole lot of good work in the community. If you are telling me the churches are, are declining in this area, I will challenge that. Churches are growing in this area because of just refugee churches. They're growing up every single day. They are one popping up here. They are doing well. They are an asset for the church. We don't need to forget that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. People who have feedback can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also tweet at us. We're at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we remind you that if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. We have our July, August 2019 issue currently out. And as usual, we like to spotlight some of the articles that are in there. Mark, did one of them come to mind? It's a story about how Ethiopian Christians are, in fact, they're not just surviving as a church. They're actually working very hard at sending out missionaries both within Ethiopia and into other nations in the world. It's just one of those uh, great stories where there are Christians who actually are enduring hard times, but they don't see themselves as victims. They see themselves as disciples of Christ who have a mission and are planning to go and do something about it. So that's that's just a great story. And whenever I read those stories, and that is often true, we heard that from Jeromo, that's kind of the approach of the Christians in Sudan. We see it in Ethiopia. And we could use a, we could use a little bit more of that in America. So if you would like to read this article about the growing missions movement in Ethiopia, you can do so by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine and do that, go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It is orderct.com slash quick to listen. We are now going to close the show with precious moments, which is when everyone gets a chance to share something that has brought them joy. Mark, go ahead. Well, actually, a small thing that's always uh, important to a person who's a landlord. I happen to own some apartments. It's just one way we've invested for our retirement. And I met a couple this morning and signed them up for new lease. And they were such a delightful couple. They were just, you know, they were Midwestern, salt of the earth, really good people. You could tell just just the way the way they applied for the process, the way they interacted with me when we were working on the lease. And I was just a feeling I'm just glad there are people like that in the world, especially when sometimes you have tenants who are less than honorable in their intentions. And to find someone like that and to begin to build a relationship with them and is, is uh, very satisfactory to me. Yeah, especially when they're going to be living in something that you own. I'm glad that, that you had a chance to interact with them and, like you said, start to build that relationship. Where can people find you outside of this? Publish something called the Galley Report, uh, G-A-L-L-I Report, which can be found at ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. I link to articles, make comment on them. Hint, this week, I'll probably link to this interview because it's one of the best interviews we've had in some time. That's the sort of thing yes, I do. Mark and I were at our edge of our seats. <laughs> All right, Momo, go ahead. I drove my daughter and a bunch of high school kids to the airport to fly to Utah for a short mission trip. 
And that was the first time for her to leave home. And she's excited to go and reach out. And when I asked her, I said, why do you want to do this? And she said, Daddy, I want to reach out with the gospel of Christ to the people. And I'm like, okay, that is a good reason. Go for it. <laughs> you can yeah. do it. You can do it. Go yes. ahead. <laughs> How old is she? She's 15. Did she come back already or is she there She's right now? still there. So you'll get to get a report in a couple of days. Yes. Yeah. So if people want to get a hold of you outside of this podcast, how can they find you? I work for War Relief, DuPage Aurora. That's that's my normal office. I'm there Monday through Friday. All right. Jermomo had a piece in the Daily Herald, uh, uh, suburban Chicago paper. I was persecuted in Sudan for being a Christian, but America wel- welcomed me. And that was actually linked to in last week's gallery report, if you wanted to get a reference on that. It's just a nice summary of what he said today. He gave us more detail today, but something it was, it was really well done. And we will link to that also in the show notes. For me, my uh, precious moment was seeing a movie called The Farewell this week. It is about a Chinese family where the matriarch has cancer, except she does not know that she has cancer, but all her family members do. It is about a family in China where the two sons do not live in China anymore and are back visiting their mom for the first time together in a long time. And a granddaughter who was raised entirely in the United States is trying to figure out why her family refuses to tell their grandma about the situation. I think anyone who has a family would love the movie and relate to the movie because it is definitely about the complexities of being grandkid, brother, son, son son-in-law. Is that um, based on a book or do you know? It's based on a true story that was part of a podcast. The podcast This American Life shared that story a couple years ago and then the person who wrote that story then pitched it around and made a movie out of it. Because I read a novel, Shanghai Girls by Lisa Lee. Lisa C, same sort of thing, the dynamics between uh, two generations of Chinese, especially as they come over to America, uh, just a fantastic novel. It's really great to read stories that are told well about family complexities and do so without demonizing any of the perspectives. And that's what I really appreciated about her. She just was able to enter into the lives of the different people and the different reasons they did and said Mm -hmm. the things they did. And Mm -hmm. all you can say is, yep, that's the way life is sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you would like the movie though, Mark. It's good. So it's called The Farewell. All right. People can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder, and the music is by Sweeps. Thank you, Cray Allred, for all your great work on the podcast. We will miss you. You can find this podcast on Spotify. We will miss him, not because he's passed, but because... He's working on other projects. Okay. Just some people don't get the right Craig did not die. Okay. <laughs> for people who have heard of him through our show notes over the years. Yeah, please. We just have a new producer right now. All right. You can find this podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you go on to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show there and give us your feedback. And you can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com as well. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.